And so I could be altruistic and love this organization I'm working for, but my core purpose could be something around sociability and engagement and just making really rich connections with the people I work with. That could be the thing that gets me out of bed. And so hearing a company purpose and talking about this, that may sound great, but that may not be what I need to access and understand consciously before Mm. I can really give myself to this organization. And so Mm. all of these different purposes, even in a great organization, don't mean we all share the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the, I think the hard part with working with purpose and helping teams acknowledge it is that everyone will have a different one and it's really hard for an individual to put their finger on what theirs in Mm -hmm. theirs is if you can help them do that then you can find some common ground to create that shared purpose for the team and that may be different to the organization and that's okay Mm -hmm. but understanding it and they're not building your operating rhythms as a team around what that is and that becomes your own team storyline that you share becomes really important Kia ora. welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Okay, I'm here today with Andy Longley. Andy, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, tell us what you do and mm-hmm. where you're sitting right now. Thanks, Morena, uh, Jules. Um, I'm sitting up in a little place called Woolly Bay on the Tutukaka coast of Northland, New Zealand. So I'm looking out at Putakawa tree and some, some ocean, which is a, a nice way to spend it. Um, I'm not originally from Northland. I'm originally from Christchurch, although I was born in Levin, not too far from where you are, but yeah. you know, back from zero to one and then grew up in Christchurch. But I am a, I guess, professionally, I'm a performance psychologist and I recently moved back to New Zealand from living abroad for about a decade. I met my wife who's from Lisbon abroad. And so we've come back to New Zealand in November um, just last year, so it's about six months. And we've got a 12-week-old, Alana, and was born, it's our, our first child. And so we moved back to New Zealand while pregnant and have settled in a little remote place in Northland um, to have the next life adventure back in New Zealand after a long time. Um, my wife, Bea, she's never lived in New Zealand. She's just done a lot of Christmas holidays there as we came back each year when we were permitted to, to come back. So this is her first adventure living in New Zealand. Um, it's my first time for, for 10 years, and it's really interesting to feel and notice the things um, as an expat when coming back to New Zealand. So that's been quite a nice process. I've done a a couple of years as uh, the OE, I think early millennium. Um, I did four years abroad and came back. But when I was in my sort of early 20s, then it's a very different experience and returning a couple of decades later now and having what's New Zealand like from the outside lens on. And when we've got a bit of a reset and it's lovely but it's also very interesting to to kind of understand ourselves better and also gives a nice parenting lens is when you start to understand the New Zealand culture from the inside and the outside and what that can look like when you're also going to be explaining to you know a tricultural child what news what it being a Kiwi is what being Portuguese is and and trying to understand that um so that's where I find myself um I guess what I do is apart from learning how to be a dad for the first time and and having the world upside down and the joys and tears that come with it. Also sports obsessed. Uh, that's I've turned my career into sports, but I've always been very sports focused um, as, as an athlete and as a coach. Um, and then I also work in performance psychology. Um, I've got a couple of businesses. One is helping sports coaches kind of create better teams. And the other one is doing leadership and performance coaching for business leadership. So yeah, there's a lot of diversity there and that probably rings true to to who I am a lot of, as well. Um, variety is definitely the spice of life is one of the philosophies that I've kept pretty dear to my heart. Yeah, and that's kind of where I find myself at the moment. There's obviously a lot more of that journey, but I think it's a nice starting point. And I have to ask, first of all, what's yeah. your favourite country? I mean, other than New Zealand, obviously, mm-hmm. you've lived in many and you've travelled a lot. What would be your favourite country and why? I will also excuse Portugal because that Portugal is dear to my heart. I had the last year we were living in Lisbon and a beautiful country, language, culture, people. I The favorite country I have traveled to, I've lived in quite a lot, um, is Syria. 
Um, and I've also lived in Syria. So I did a year um, as a United Nations peacekeeper, 2010, 2011, and I was living in Damascus for six months and then lived in um, southern Lebanon for six months. And I loved Syria. I was there at the starting point for the Syrian uprising. So just when that began, I was living in Damascus. Interesting story in itself. But what I saw for the five and a half months before that started to, to I guess, explode was just a wonderful country which no one ever went to. It wasn't on the tourist map. There was a real purity of living. There was, you could travel around the country really easily and have really rich personal experiences with the Syrian people. I, I spoke quite a bit of Arabic at the time, so I was able to communicate reasonably well. And I just loved seeing it, you know, all the different cities you're able to travel to with Aleppo and Homs and Damascus in itself was just wonderful. And, and I, that was probably the, the most authentic experience I've ever had traveling and living there. And, you know, when you come from a culture, you could argue was quite distinct from the Syrian culture, but you felt so at home quite quickly. And I've lived in Canada before, I lived in Scotland, which you could also argue are much more aligned to the New Zealand culture in some respects. Um, I love Syria the most. It was just pure and, and really eye-opening because um, it wasn't an easy country for the Syrians to be living in at the time and uh, sort of the dictatorship, which is still present. But um, yeah, those, those connections were very pure. So I love that one. I find that really interesting. I've just been to Egypt and I've never been to Egypt, but always wanted to go because I've got this fascination with, you know, the pharaohs and hieroglyphics. I used to um, I used to know how to write hieroglyphics kind of, wow. briefly, but I just was fascinated by the idea of pictures as language and how descriptive they could be. But I was a bit nervous about going to Egypt because of, you know, the political situation for many years and being, you know, a female in a Muslim country and traveling a lot. What I found really fascinating is how culture and warmth between individuals just blurs all of those differences in an instant and I wonder if it's a it was a similar experience in terms of Syria is that you meet people who you can connect with regardless of how they were brought up what they believe in because actually you see each other as human beings mm -hmm. and all of that stuff is just it's just window dressing really yep yeah it's amazing what can be said through a look an eye contact and, and a smile, if it's a you know, smile is pretty universal as a gesture. And yeah, I think it's the same. And what I have found, you, know, you can go to really popular countries for tourists to go to, you know, whether that's the Amalfi Coast in Italy or, you know, Lisbon is very touristy at, at parts or, you know, Vancouver or wherever it may be. The people living there are pretty apathetic towards tourism to a degree, even though a lot of they're living from it. Because it's like, yes, more tourists, more tourists, more tourists, but I preferred it before the tourists can be a sentiment you can feel. But when you go to countries where there's not much tourism, there's a joy that someone has chosen to come see where they live. And I think that's from a, oh, there's something new and interesting that I can interact with. But I also think there's a degree of sitting behind the scenes, typical psychologist degree of that self-validation that if someone comes and see this as beautiful, then that makes me feel better because I'm living somewhere that someone else can appreciate. And, and you know, I feel like I'm in a, in a lovely place in itself. And that's what I find off the beaten track with the intrepid travel. Mm. Um, it's purer and richer, even though you may not have as many tourist things that you go see in these places, because that's why mm. the tourists don't go. You can have a better experience. And I've always liked that, the intrepid, mm. the off the beaten track, that type of stuff's always been more interesting. Uh, mm. Again, that variety coming back, yeah. I think you get a little bit more shock, shock value. So now you're based in New Zealand and uh, have you been reminded just how far away from everywhere else New Zealand is? Yeah, <laughs> and we're planning at the moment to to go to a couple of trips and it'll be the first with our, our young ones. So obviously that creates a different dynamic that we're not used to because we, I met my wife, we're both working for Emirates Airline. And so, you know, we're, we're probably the, one of the definition of travellers. Like that was why we both went and worked for an airline because you could just go explore the world. Um, and we're going to um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming for a wedding in, in August. And then we're also going to one in South Africa, um, interestingly enough, in October, and then back to Lisbon to visit the family back there. And 
and that's when it really dawns in terms of the distance i think you know i've never really blinked at the the long flights personally when i was living in dubai you know the 17 hour flight back to auckland i did that many times i come for a long weekend because you're working for an airline you can and you can mm-hmm. sleep on the plane and mm-hmm. come back and you know you, you have an event and you go back so the world was very small there but now it's feeling very different through the lens of being a parent but also the fact that long haul travel isn't something that i think i will embrace as much as i used to <laughs> and so yeah very much so so it's it's a, it will be an annual thing i would imagine whereas previously i never had this parameter around how often or when i could go back to new zealand so i didn't feel quite so removed from it but now mm-hmm. I, I do feel quite removed from the northern hemisphere yeah mm-hmm. especially in northland because there's also a couple <laughs> more see. legs to do to get to an airport <laughs> for me now rather than just um, drive my car to the car park and get on a plane it's a bit different yeah i mean it's interesting isn't it I, my advice for traveling with small people is take much more food than you think you'll ever need and also a whole extra spare pair of clothes for you and the little one can tell you horror stories of traveling with babies and you know vomiting uh, or running out of food and the plane not having anything that was suitable and then you've got a hungry baby for many 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 hours and everybody hates you everybody hates you on the plane But I was going to say, I, you know, when I, I lived in Europe for a long time, I lived in England for a long time and mm-hmm. traveling was something taken for granted. You know, you could hop on a plane or a train or a boat and you could be in Europe and you could go mm-hmm. to many different countries. And you could also go to a whole lot of other countries, not in Europe for, a, you know, for a very fairly cheap price and not very long. And I didn't do half as much traveling as I wished I had done as soon as I landed in New Zealand and I realized just how long it would take to get anywhere. So I have been to Italy more times since I've lived in New Zealand than I ever did. (laughs) (laughs) That's the appreciation now, isn't it? Um, But you're very right. The complacency which comes with proximity or ability Mm -hmm. to do that. You know, I think I was living in Germany just before Portugal, so for six, uh, five years. And the same thing, you know, get in a car, drive to Austria, drive to Slovenia, drive to drive to Italy, drive to France. It's great. And we did it a little bit, but probably not as often as now I would appreciate to being able to, you know, in four hours, I could be in France, you know, mm. that would be a wonderful ability to have at the moment. But that's, that's human nature <laughs> that, that we, we don't always appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and take advantage of what we can um, when it's so available. Mm. And so, tell me a little bit about your sportiness because you look quite sporty. You are, you know, you like sports as entertainment. Presumably, you also played sports. What was your yeah. favourite sport? First sport was football, uh, soccer, football. Played that all through school, and that was the main one I, I dived pretty deeply into. Um, till I was 18 and swimming for a long period as well when I was younger. It's a tough sport, swimming, um, in terms of the training demand that it places on, on swimmers. Um, so it was definitely football, and that's still a lifelong passion. I'm a Liverpool football club supporter, as well as um, obviously the All Whites and some of my old clubs down in Christchurch. But then, as with many teenagers in New Zealand, switched to rugby mm. um, to follow the peer group and hang out with my buddies once I left school and then played rugby and then rugby became my main my main sport. So those are the two ones I balance. And then mm. snowboarding has also been a lifelong living close to the mountains in Christchurch growing up again, a lovely place to have access. And then I traveled for a few years playing rugby. That was the main way I traveled um, on my first OE. So I had a great couple of seasons in Canada, I played in Scotland for a couple of years. And then mostly around New Zealand, but also when I went to Dubai, even though I was past my prime from a playing point of view, when I went to Dubai, I think the second day after landing there, going purely for a work reason, you know, relocated for a job, just joined the local rugby team. Coach had already kind of emailed me and said, yeah, I'll come down and play. And, and then immediately, you know, 50 friends one day after landing somewhere. And that's that's what I love about the sports element. And then I've just continued playing in, until... Uh, early 40s so I was even playing in Germany um, and, and then I had a, an injury and burst a lung playing rugby and decided that was the time to, to hang out the boots a couple of years ago so rugby's a sport but I, I love many sports and from a viewing point of view and a participation point of view and that's probably started to change now my body's broken down a little bit I'll be definitely focusing more on the snow and the hiking 
um, and probably won't put on rugby boots or football boots for a while. So do you think, I mean, you must have analysed yourself to death, but do you think it's the the social team aspect of sports or is it the competitive aspect or is it the physical, you know, proving yourself and, and improving all the time or is it a kind of equal combination of all three or something else? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, I'm very competitive and I know that from the behavior I've demonstrated for many decades on the sports field, but that's not my main driver. Interesting when you, when you, you know, challenge me to self-reflect, it would be the social dynamic. I've only ever played team sports. Mm. Swimming uh, wasn't one I was particularly attracted to, so, you know, didn't do it for too long. So the, t- the team sport, the camaraderie, the social side, and, you know, you know we were chatting briefly that the the levels of so-called extroversion can evolve and shape differently or sociability is maybe a better way to describe it with age and different experiences and i've definitely noticed that that the social side was huge um, for team sports and i was attracted to it and then that my sociability has definitely decreased um, as it does typically with age your social um, circles get smaller and tighter and bed maybe stronger um so i think that's been the main one but also the physical elements this there's definitely something that drives mobility in me i'm always doing something whether it's still going to the gym even i'm not training for anything or any purpose i will still go because i think that's just something maybe i'm habituated to or i still enjoy so social first physical movement would be second and i don't think it was the competitive elements that really drove me i think that just came out once i crossed the white line It's an interesting one. I actually used to train swimming in swimming Mm -hmm. as well. But what I hated about it was having to compete. And so I stopped when the push came from the coaches to become more and more competitive and spend weekends Mm -hmm. going. This is many years ago, obviously, weekends going to meets and competing for the club and, and all of that sort of stuff. That's when I turned off it. Um, and so I've never been a team sport person. I mean, I am a football supporter, funnily Mm. enough. I supported Manchester City for many, many years while they were dramatically unsuccessful every season (laughs) and then moved to New Zealand and sort of lost the, you know, the easy ability to follow. And of course, since then, they've become wildly successful because of all the money put in and what have you. So that's just goes to show. But I, so I like watching some team sports but I've never been a team sports person at all yet I'm quite a sociable person I just don't like that mix of competitiveness and sociability you know to Mm -hmm. me it it ends up getting a little bit itchy you know I can feel the itch in my back if if I'm working with friends but it's it's in a competitive environment and that's why I think in if I was to reflect I've always steered away from team sports team activities mm-hmm. uh, like I'd say I'm a team player work-wise but yeah. not in a competitive sense at all yeah do you think it's because it in some way degrades the type or quality I don't know which is the right word of the social interactions you have when there's a competitive lens whether it's against the opposition or the extra pressure and expectation that comes with your teammates uh, do you think it's that it's a, it's a degradation of the the relationship that competitiveness can bring and I think it does inevitably yeah I mean I think there's a purity about friendship Mm -hmm. uh, and or even you know collegiality when you're working with people where you I like to be supportive and challenging and achieve what we're there to achieve Mm -hmm. if if there's competition you're actually saying there are other things that are more important than me supporting you or us us together being successful yeah. Um, and I, I don't like that doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. Hmm. yeah it's made me reflect. I, I understand. And I, and I think the best friendships I've had um, through an experience, a shared experience um, as well is probably from, from the Navy days. So those that I went through basic training with, um, are still incredibly close no matter what and those lifelong friends that are just tagged as lifelong friend and you give up and you always just come back in and out of those relationships like they haven't moved on and that was through a shared experience and that was that was a team because you know you join I think I joined with 28 other other young persons at the time um, and then we were 
forced to go through you know an ordeal for six months and that was you were competing against the system and so and you were competing against you know surviving not literally but not you know not choosing to exit or, or not you know being punished or whatever it was and and that shared experience really deepened the camaraderie not only quicker but also deeper i think and that's uh, interesting because that's very different to the camaraderie you feel through a team sport uh, I, as i reflect on the different relationships that have come through those two different kind of mediums um so there is something about the sociability and the friendships and the connections can be strengthened maybe when you're not competing against um achieving an output like a, a win or a result and there's there's wins and losers but it's just really around we're in this together and it is a probably a very pure collaborative experience because if someone couldn't clean their boots you would help them because there was there was collective punishment for all of that so it already distanced ourselves from i want to stand out and be the best player or i want to score goals score tries or whatever a lot of athletes would be trying to do from an individual element and it really strips it back down to the collective good mm. um, and you would think team sports would do that but they don't purely no no don't. i don't know that they do and i'm interested because you've taken some of that those experiences and your interest in sport and you've channeled them into the businesses that you run Mm-hmm. So somehow, whether consciously or unconsciously, you've sifted and filtered through <laughs> the things that are constructive and positive about both and brought them into your work. Yeah, um, probably more subconsciously, but um, I was always interested in people, behavior, group dynamics. That was an element of the psychology out of school. That's what I did my undergrad and, and postgrad in. Um, and I didn't really know. I was 17 and pick a major. Uh, and honestly, I chose psychology because I had the later lecture starting times. So I was like, yeah, that's that's a good reason. Law was eight, psychology was 11. I'm going with 11. That's a much better option. And then here, you know, so then I don't know if, if the, the, the choice I had, but then of course you have to enjoy the subjects continue. So understanding the social observational dynamics is very fun. And then I did that in the operational with the military stuff for a while and then the corporate stuff for a, a long while, but I miss sport. I missed the purity of sport and um, with a lot of um, leadership development in the corporate space, um, it can lose a little bit of the purity I found because often um, you're working with individuals who are trying to um, accelerate their own career. Um, And that is a very common mindset in people in the corporate space. Um, nothing wrong with it, human nature to a degree, because we're trying to provide, we're trying to validate, we're trying to build up our own career ambitions, our self-esteem, all of that sort of stuff. So it's natural. But I did find when you're working with them as a leadership or, or team coaching, that it was harder to emotionally connect to that element because you're trying to work at a collective sense. Hey, let's do a team development session or let's do team coaching and let's focus on making you as a group better. There was always someone who was like, yeah, I want to do that, but only as as long as it helps me get the next promotion. Um, This isn't an overt thing, but you see it through the behavioral um, habits. And so that's what I found is that I I did a a bit of work with a rugby team here in New Zealand down in Canterbury, and I realized understanding the dynamics of the team and how you can make uh, this group better was pure again, because all of a sudden they're not trying to get ahead they are genuinely trying to make the team better because not many people, they were a professional team, but not many people go into it thinking that way. They, they, it's all amateur for the love and then suddenly you're good enough and you end up getting money and choose it to go in for a career in that regard. And so when I was working with sport again and, and you're working with amateur coaches who are coaching because their kids play football or rugby or soccer or tennis or whatever, they're volunteers. And so that's, there's a real purity of intent and purpose in that. And that was what I connected with a lot more. Corporate stuff was harder to find. It's definitely there. And there was a lot of amazing leaders and teams, but it was harder to find. But in the sports, it's it's ubiquitous. It's just it just is. It's people do it because they want to be doing it. And so the reasons were a lot easier to connect. And you're working with people who are genuinely trying to get better because it's not for a promotion. It's because it'll make their kids have more fun or it'll make the, you know, the, the kids learn better or, or whatever it is. And, and that was um, really interesting. That's where I kind of transitioned 
um, really only a year and a half ago back into the sports world from the corporate environment because you have those conversations and you look at people's eyes and they're they're doing it for love versus promotion and it was e much easier to connect um, that way. Yeah, where, where, that have you found something similar? Yeah, I mean, I do find that fascinating. I I suppose my experience is largely with leaders in the public sector uh, yeah. and some not-for-profit. Um, I have worked with, um, you know, private sector companies and what I've found with engaging with those leaders who are generally, they tend to be the, the sort of owners or the CEOs of those yeah. companies is that it's a different conversation completely from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think uh, I find that more challenging personally to have to shift my mindset, my conversation, the words that, that I use, um, and probably because I worked less in the private sector than in the public sector. So I've lived it in the public yeah. sector. I've worked in non-for-profit. I've worked in local government. I've worked in central government. Mm -hmm. I've seen it, you know. So I have this wellspring of stories and anecdotes and my own reactions to things that I can bring to when I'm doing leadership development or the peer mentoring that I do. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in when I'm working with private corporate sector clients, I'm thinking, okay, I have to put myself in their shoes. I have to do some research and I have, it's a harder mental effort for me, I guess, uh, in yeah. that situation. What I find in public sector um, and increasingly, I think it is becoming more widespread is that if you can connect on purpose then the promotion aspect starts to become less important and less mm -hmm. of a driver but you have to clear away a whole lot of stuff to get to purpose and I think it's one of those things that's really underplayed in organizations because an organization will say, for example, we're a public sector organization, therefore we're here for the public good and citizens. We have a mission statement. We have a purpose statement. The government set us priorities. Therefore, it must be completely clear to everybody in the organization exactly what they're here for and why they're mm. doing what they're doing. And of course, it's not at all. Um, and so for leaders, ah, somebody's mm. away. For leaders, yeah, you start from the perspective of trying to understand, do you know your purpose in this organisation for this cause? And mm -hmm. if you don't, then you can't expect anybody else to go the extra mile or to suddenly become super collaborative because they've got nothing to aim for. They've got nothing mm -hmm. that brings them together. And your job as a leader is to find that purpose for yourself and then be really good at storytelling that so that other people mm -hmm. can find that for themselves. Yeah. Um, whereas I think for you in terms of what you what, what I kind of got is that you don't have to do all that purpose work when you're looking at sports teams or coaches because it's it's completely obvious. It is actually obvious to everybody mm -hmm. what they're there for. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because one of the areas I do focus on specifically is, is purpose and how to create a shared purpose. And if, when I've been working with you know founders or, or leadership teams, even in organisations that have a really great reason for existing, you know they're helping people or they're enabling or whatever it may be. So ones that on the surface you would think this organisation is easy to connect because it's purpose led. That doesn't mean the people in that organisation will share that purpose and everyone is singing off the same hymn sheet um, as well because every individual's life experiences will be different and everyone's purpose will be very different and even if i'm working for the greatest not-for-profit that is helping feed underprivileged children somewhere i may have altruism in me which has attracted me but that may not be my defining purpose for me personally we don't have two different purposes. We don't have a professional mm. purpose and a personal purpose, mm. and we operate them differently. We have one purpose that sits mm. in and drives all of our behaviors, our mindset, our thinking, our motivation, mm. our engagement. 
And it's really hard for people to identify what their own purpose is because most of it's sitting in the subconscious in terms of driving our behaviors. And so I could be altruistic and love this organization I'm working for, but my core purpose could be something around sociability and engagement and just making really rich connections with the people I work with. That could be the thing that gets me out of bed. And so hearing a company purpose and talking about this, that may sound great, but that may not be what I need to access and understand consciously before mm. I can really give myself to this organization. And so mm. all of these different purposes, even in a great organization, don't mean we all share the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, the I think, the hard part with working with purpose and helping teams acknowledge it is that everyone will have a different one and it's really hard for an individual to put their finger on what theirs in mm-hmm. and theirs is if you can help them do that then you can find some common ground to create that shared purpose for the team and that may be different to the organization and that's okay mm-hmm. but understanding it and they're not building your operating rhythms as a team around what that is and that becomes your own team storyline that you share becomes really important mm-hmm. but in sport you don't need to do quite so much of it because Mm. people are driven by their purpose they end up in it you're not going to get out of bed on a cold canterbury morning when it's frosty the kids have got an eight o'clock kickoff and you know you're putting them in three thermals and out the door you're not going to do that unless you're getting some pure reward from it and your purpose may be to see your kids thrive which is a very common one great because that's purpose-led no matter what so when you're getting together a bunch of amateur coaches or professional coaches you can find that quite quickly. Um, and so what I have found is when I'm working with teams in the corporate sector, it's hard work and, and, and it should be mm. to help them identify their purpose and, and create one together. But in the sports teams, it's almost like we fast forward that step, mm. which is a fundamental step. And so you really see the conversation start and finish in different places. Um, and maybe that's you know a representation of where I've been drawn from is, is purpose following into sport because it's obvious um something that element have you found the same because purpose is is something that is a is a buzzword but it's a buzzword with good reason it's a buzzword Mm. because it is so genuinely um sitting behind what unlocks a lot of our wonderful qualities Mm. in life or in work have you found it because it's it's really hard to help people identify it themselves It's really difficult. I think what I have to, I mean, and I'd be interested because you run a couple of businesses, you know, um, yourself, is that when I made the decision to fundamentally shift away from being an employee or a contractor or working Mm -hmm. for other people and decided to work for myself and for my purpose, Mm -hmm. um, that was hard mental effort you know um and actually for me what catalyzed that was a burnout situation mm-hmm. where i lost my you know i was lost in the fog um yep. for a few months and that never happened to me before i've always been really driven you know get up in the morning go and do the work work long hours didn't matter because i had that sense of i'm doing this for the greater good or whatever it might be but when i um kind of woke up and realized that I actually didn't care. That's when I thought, oof, you know, alarm bells, uh, you know, going off everywhere. And I thought, okay, I need to really think about this because Mm -hmm. I can't keep going on that same hamster wheel if what I end up having to have two or three months out because I'm physically incapable of bringing any passion to Mm -hmm. anything work-related. And it bleeds into your personal life as well, you know, Mm -hmm. um, very, very quickly. So I did a whole lot of introspection um, to sort of work out what would be my solution to -hmm. this problem. And my solution to that problem was to set up my own businesses where it's really clear to me every single day what I'm doing and why and for for whom and for what. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have to go through kind of corporate jargon I don't have have to have debates with other leaders or bosses about this decision or that decision because they're actually much clearer if you have that sense of of purpose so having been through that I know the joy that it brings when you don't have the weight of all that obfuscation um, and so when I'm working with individuals, I, I'm not a coach, I'm not a trained coach. And so I don't call myself a coach because I'm mm-hmm. really aware 
of the difference in terms of what I do versus what people who are, you know, professionally trained and, and what have mm-hmm. you. Um, what I call it is peer mentoring, mm-hmm. um, where I can bring my lived experience, I can listen to people and I can say, well, you know, if I was on the receiving end of this, this is how I would react, you know. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could think of a different way of doing it. Um, yeah. Uh, so I do a little bit of that and I do some work with leadership teams to sort of bring the dynamic together. And what I found um, particularly with those leadership teams is that the focus is trying to get the dynamic to work so that they mm-hmm. can have, you know, a leadership team work program that they can um, get some real uh, sort of exponential shift because mm-hmm. they're all making decisions in their area of accountability, but that go in the same direction. And they come to it thinking it's about business planning or doing a strategy piece of work or whatever. And what you realize very quickly when you talk to them individually and see them in a group is that they don't know each other. They don't know their own motivations. They don't know each other's motivations. And so they talk past each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you'll have somebody who's an introverted person who thinks deeply about everything and wants to weigh all the evidence up. And on the other hand, you'll have somebody who speaks as they think and who is driven by instinct and, you know, has a sort of try it and fail fast kind of mentality. Those two people in a room or in a leadership team, mm-hmm. unless they understand how each other's going to approach a situation and where they can meet in the middle, it's never going to work ever. (laughs) You know, they're going to annoy each other. Um, They're just talking past each other all the time, even though they might have a really clear sense of their, you know, they're aiming in the right direction. Um, But when you get them to say, okay, what's your purpose of being in this team? Mm -hmm. There's a, oh, I don't know. I've never been asked that question. You know, you can ask me what my role is. You can ask me what the purpose of my function is within this organization. You can ask me for the elevator pitch for the organization. But what you're asking me to do is say, what what am I in this team for? Mm-hmm. And they they haven't got it, you know. Yeah. And it's not a criticism. It's that nobody's ever asked them or given them the opportunity to think about that. Yeah, so we go, a lot of organizations go through the corporate motions because that's the way it works um, rather, than, rather than kind of understanding it. And another area which I hear you talking about is really understanding, you know, where there's shared assumptions and where there's different assumptions in terms of how a kind of team gets together. Like people think they're doing the same thing, but they're in very different starting points or they're looking at it through their different lenses and they have very different assumptions around what good looks like or what the objective is or whose role is what. Um, and so a really great exercise is to talk about, well, what are the assumptions in this decision and getting people to, to blindly share their assumptions, like and you know, individually do that without discussion and then seeing the, the alignment or the disparity in some of those can be a really good um, exercise. And, and so when I work with individuals or, or teams around their decision-making, that's one of the core platforms that I try is, okay, we've got a key decision of, you know, merger, acquisition, or, you know, team game plan, if it's in sports or whatever it may be, this is a really important one that's going to have a big impact. So we want to get it right. What are the assumptions that we're all bringing into this um, in terms of, you know, what's the objective we're trying to do or who's got decision-making or what is the key information we're basing this decision on? And people will have very different starting points on that unless you talk about them early in the decision making process and do as you said like surface those assumptions so we go okay great now let's align on them uh, this is the information we're using this is what we're trying to achieve these are the, how we're going to do the roles and then you can actually kind of get the boat rowing in the same direction but it's always left to chance because we're in a hurry we do things quickly some cultures in particular have a little bit more transactional nature to the working environment um, take this long with a relationship building, you know, straight to business type elements. And then that has collateral damage that can sort of follow through with it as well. Um, but you also triggered something in me when you said, you know, you had a couple of months when you're kind of in the fog and a bit of burnout, and that was your catalyst as well. I had a quite a similar experience. I was working my last um, in-house kind of corporate job when I was an employee was just before uh, or just in COVID and I um, just moved up for a big e-commerce company um, in Berlin 
you know, really fascinating company. It was kind of a German unicorn. So it was a startup that had been hugely successful. It was a tech-led company. So my intellectual um, decision-making to go for that job was, oh, you know, that's a couple of new industries, startup, tech. I'm really fascinated by that. Let's go do it because I've become a little bit apathetic in the previous company of not really finding the love in what I'm doing. And then went up and, and I thought, okay, great. I just needed a change. That's what I've done my whole life. I've either changed countries or changed something else. And then I've got, you know, a new burst of motivation and stimulation. And then when I did that, after two weeks, I realized, oh, this hasn't worked. <laughs> I'm here in the same place as I thought I was running away from. Um, and I really, you know, to be honest, it was like, I really don't care about this job. I like the people. I'm going to do my best and I will continue to do because, you know, professional standards and all of that. But I was like, behind the shutters, I was like, oh, I really don't care. And then that was when I knew I needed to make some drastic decision that I could no longer continue on on that career path. And, you know, it was one I'd invested two decades in. It was the only one I knew. It's like, oh, what next? So, you know, I had never seen myself as as an entrepreneur in any way. Um, and even you know, as a psychologist, I've done and accredited kind of every psychometric you can think of. And a lot of them purport to measure entrepreneurialism. And I'd, I'd always scored really low. No, terrible, not me. I, you know, um, it's nothing to do with it. And suddenly I'm faced with the decision when I actually have to do a drastic career change. And I don't know what it's going to be, but I just know in my heart, I feel um, the head was trying to say, no, what are you doing? It's a great paycheck. Stay here. And I was like, heart was like, sorry, I'm out. And heart makes the decisions in the end um, that I had to do something. So I had a really similar journey to you. It was like I just reached a crossroad and I didn't see it coming necessarily. And But I knew there was a moment that I just had to change change tact. Um, and I know a lot of people would have that. And it's that's the scariest moment, you know our brains we as humans but our brains hate uncertainty mm. um you know it's, it's one of the things we're almost allergic to and so just changing off a tact of predictability known security safety financial security um, ego validation all the stuff we've been investing in and suddenly go right i'm just going to go into this tunnel where it's just black and i don't know what's going to happen um but i know i have to mm. um and so normally I'd, you would assume that you would sit at that crossroad for a while and like Oh, what am I going to do? Or what am I going to, I'm going to sit, but I felt the decision was quite clear, even though I had no idea what that decision was going to be. I mm. felt that that was an easy decision to make. Did you have a similar experience? Like that, was there a defining moment where you, you knew the answer to the decision or how was your journey? Yeah, I was on, I was walking on a beach because um, there's beautiful beaches nearby. And part of my sort of therapy for myself was to do long walks on the beach, listening to different podcasts, trying to find, you know, answers, but also just trying to, just trying to get interested in something mm -hmm. again, you know, um, and I had like a, a flash of inspiration. Um, and that was the moment that I came up with the humans at work concept and decided mm -hmm. I was going to you know, host a podcast, even if nobody listened and that I wanted to use my voice in a way that I wanted to use it rather than being driven by other people. Mm -hmm. And that was the decision. It was, and I came home and I said to my partner, I've decided this is what I'm going to do. Okay. Cause you went out 45 minutes ago and they, this wasn't even on the horizon, but it was there yeah. somewhere, you know, it was kind mm -hmm. of, it had been bubbling up for a, for a long time. Yeah. Um, so the decision was easy. What was difficult I think was the um taking a chance on yourself when you have all of these expectations upon you you know mm -hmm. so you have a mortgage you have a family you have you know uh, a kind of profession you know some sort of reputation mm -hmm. and you know people would say to me why why are you doing that like what makes you want to do that uh, and it wasn't that they were criticizing. It was just that it didn't fit with yeah. what they thought I should do. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's you get the collie wobbles, which is a very old fashioned English word. But, you know, you, you get the collie wobbles. But when you have that purity of purpose, um, it's like that weight can be, you know, lifted off you. When mm -hmm. I wake up in the morning and I think, great, I'm going to do all of this stuff today. I don't think, oh. 
I have to do this, you know, Um, and not every, I mean, some days I'm like, oh, it's a Saturday school sports and it's raining (laughs) and I've got to get up. Uh, I still have that. Um, But um, when I'm doing things for the the companies, for the purposes that I've set Mm -hmm. up, I don't have that, um, that dread you know the Sunday night dreads um, that I think you get in school, and sometimes they keep they stay with you all through your career. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was the easiest decision that I've had to make in the last yeah. kind of couple of years, and I certainly don't regret it. I mm-hmm. would have regretted not doing it, and that was the that yeah. was the key for me. If I don't do this, then I'm going to think about it forever. Mm-hmm. If I do do it, then great I won't ever regret it no matter whether it's a success or a failure or it peters out or whatever if I'm going to have fun doing it and I think it's worth it Mm -hmm. that it's worth my time and my energy and my passion it's worth it yeah um yeah I've triggered a couple of thoughts um I love instinct and you know where we call it gut instinct or whatever it is and and I think it's a misunderstood thing i try to use like what's going to call it a construct it's so psychology um a misunderstood thing um because i as a, as a trained psychologist objectivity business psychologist um objectivity is the be all and end all you know running whether you're running assessment centers and selection centers, all of that stuff was objectivity mm-hmm. which is great because you know human biases are everywhere um and inevitable but when you're doing that you know, we, I remember we used to joke about, oh, person said gut instinct. No, they don't make decisions on that. But now as I've you know, studied a lot more of the science behind it, instincts is, is a fundamental thing that we need to be able to access consciously to guide good decision making. Mm. There's times when you don't want to trust your instinct, if you don't have enough information, if you're not an expert or anything, and you, everyone's an expert in their own life, just as an important caveat. But then actually listening to your instinct with intent. And so sitting back and if someone else is listening to this and they're at a, a you know a sliding door moment, whether a career, life, hobbies, whatever it may be, to sit back and just listen to your feelings and just like your your sensations, your body feelings. What am I feeling when I ask myself the question, should I go left or should I go right? And then just try to notice is it is it a knot in your stomach? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it excitement? But just note the sensations and then you know you can write them down it could be quite useful you just note them and then ask yourself these questions you know periodically and see if those sensations get deeper or louder Mm -hmm. because that is a really great way to guide decision making is the gut instinct and the reason that i think that happens is back to our purpose conversation funnily enough in our subconscious brain we've got this part of the brain which is called the default mode network and this is 24 7 whirring along going what is my place in the world it's just constantly trying to figure this out we don't know it's happening and often our conscious brain can't even access it but it's going what is my place in the world and then when we are doing stuff in line with our purpose our genuine real purpose this part of the brain goes this is great i'm going to give you some motivation i'm going to give you some excitement i'm going to give you some joy and that's where it starts to feed from so if we can take a step back and go I'm at the sliding door moment. What am I listening to myself? What you're really doing is you're listening to this part of the brain going, hey, is this in line with my purpose? What are my sensations that I'm feeling and thinking with my gut instincts? Because that's actually your default mode network or your purpose and subconscious going, hey, this is going to be really good for you because I'm going to give you bursts of motivation to do it. Um, And so that can be a really nice way. but you know, we, you had an epiphany moment listening to something because you were giving yourself an exposure to different materials that you could then your subconscious was constantly probably working on and going, hey, this is giving me energy. And you listen to that moment and go, I'm mm-hmm. going to follow my energy. Rationally, you know, your brain probably gone, this is not a very good idea. My mortgage is coming out in three days time. Yeah. There's no there's no route to mortgage payment on this one. You know, let's not do it. But you listen to your instincts. Um, and the other thing it triggered in me is the language that we use when we answer these questions. Um, and when we were sitting and thinking, right, I'm at this fork in the road, um, what am I going to do? If we ask ourselves the question, or we can ask our peer or our partner or, or whoever it may be, you know, um, what are the reasons why you should go left or right? And if we, if we say the word should, um, must, should's a really um, tricky one. If we say these words, and that's giving us indication that maybe that's not the right path. Because when we're saying should or must or need to, 
this is around like our conscious logical brain mm. going, hey, we've got some responsibilities or people expect us to, let's go do that. But if you're saying, I want, I feel, mm. the language you use when ask, answering that question yourself or someone asked you it, is also a really good indicator of which fork in the road is going to help unlock that purpose. And if it's I want or I'm excited by or, or um, I, I need is a tricky one because it can go both ways but so the language we use can also give us an indication mm. so if we're in those tricky moments listen to your feelings what is my instinct telling me to do and what language do i use when i describe why i should go either way and that can give a couple of really good indicators on where you're going to be more fulfilled and excited and motivated down those paths and i wish i knew this beforehand this is all reflection on my experiences for like you're laughing it's the same thing it's like oh this would have been great if i actually trusted my instincts back then but it's yeah. something i've learned i've learned as a result of i think yeah and i think i mean that concept of vocabulary is so important i think um i'm i'm finding it with having children i've got children of different ages some my own some blended family and mm -hmm. and um, what we're trying to do is give them more vocabulary to describe their feelings about something or their feelings about um, what they're experiencing because they're limited by the vocabulary that, that, mm -hmm. that they have or that's cool or, you know, or that's used on TV or by their peers. And actually, it's a blunt instrument, you know. Yeah. So if you take something like fear, I'm afraid of this situation um, and you say, well, let's break that down. You know, like, how do you know you're afraid? Do you have butterflies in your tummy? Like, do you feel a little bit sick? Are mm -hmm. you going through in your mind different scenarios of what might and might not happen? Um, you know, let's break that down a little bit. So maybe the butterflies are a little bit of excitement because actually mm -hmm. you think this might be really, really good and you can't wait to do it. And so you've got a bit of excitement in there. You might have a bit of dread um, you might be doing some catastrophizing because you're thinking about the worst case scenario mm -hmm. um, and what might that mean? You know, you might let people down. And so you don't want, you know, you don't want to let your friends down. So mm -hmm. there's all of these different things where if you break down a word into different kinds of words, you're able to break down the problem. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I find that with the kids and with the teenagers that that really does help if you're trying to understand, you know, what's the route through this mm -hmm. is to break it down. It also yeah. works with leadership, I yeah. think. And, you know, I'm a leader as well as supporting lead. You know, I'm a mm -hmm. I'm a leader of a team. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a leader of a maybe like a movement I guess mm -hmm. it's my own movement but I'm still the only one you know I'm the one yeah. having the vision I'm the one doing the driving I'm the one making the decisions and so if you say if you take leadership and you say okay well let's break it down mm -hmm. because leadership can be so many things but yeah. if you just use the term leader you're missing all of those different things and one of the um, long for very many years, like I don't know, 25 years, I have been driving home this point with leaders around decision making is a fundamental role of a leader. <laughs> and so therefore is courage. But you might not think you are courageous um, because it doesn't gel with what you think courage is. But actually, when you're making decisions, which you must do as <laughs> a leader, uh, a lot of that will take courage that's yeah. a feeling you know mm -hmm. what comes with courage is fear mm -hmm. uh it also comes with gut instinct because you can be much more courageous about a brand new thing if your gut is telling you this is the right thing to do you know so all mm -hmm. of those things uh bundle up into oh i'm a leader or yeah. you know whatever it might be um, and unbundling them helps people grapple with, okay, well, I want to build this area or I want to get better at this or I want to understand this a bit more so that I can tell other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and vocabulary is often the thing that can unlock that for people. They just don't have the words. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't remember where I read the research, but there is good research showing the, the vocabulary we have around emotions is directly linked to emotional intelligence. Mm. Um, and so hearing you say it, like obviously brand new to parenting, but understanding 
how important it is in loving, I'm going to you know, steal with pride, you're exploring the different emotive language that, that kids or it could be anyone, you know, family or, or colleagues use is a really great way to help understand what the different emotions or sentiments may be. And with that understanding then comes self-awareness and ability to adapt behavior and all the mm. stuff that kind of lead to emotional intelligence. Um, but often, and I think this is, this is a really strong cultural lens, is probably also an element of a, of a, I guess, a gender lens over the vocabulary we use when it comes to emotions as well. Um, so we may be stunting ourselves, you know, we talking about myself um, and how I've you know, grown up as a male New Zealander and how we talk about emotions uh, um, and then of stunting my ability to really be as emotionally intelligent as I could develop towards because I don't have that same level of vocabulary. I may intellectually know what the words mean. I may know what trepidation means or whatever it may be, but I don't think of it that way. I don't use it. So this is an intellectual knowledge, not a personal knowledge. And I think that's a really nice thought is the words we use unlocks knowledge and awareness and with that comes the ability to self-navigate more effectively and more accurately mm. and make better decisions and make mm. better connections mm. and manage our behavior more effectively and build stronger reputations professionally if that's what we're trying to do or have better connections with the people we play sports with or whatever the you know the theater that we're we're exploring it goes um the same for physical i'm sure in kind of coaching for physical performance is that mm -hmm. you can have an ache um but what's driving the ache you know like how do you break all of that down and I know these days I don't know much about it not being an athlete um but you know the science of mm -hmm. diagnosis and therefore the science of what is the solution pack to repair a, an injured muscle or to improve your performance from you know 0.8 to 0.7 uh, is is massive. Um, mm -hmm. So physically, I feel like there's been a lot of focus on vocabulary and the minutiae of certain aspects. Um, but one thing I notice um, as a as a somebody who identifies as female and also mm -hmm. you know getting on a little bit um, mm -hmm. is that the vocabulary for female physical uh, symptoms mm -hmm. is really, really narrow. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you've probably seen there's been a growing movement globally around menopause and perimenopause and all of the things that go with that. Um, and it's it's really interesting to me to see that actually it's not so much that people won't be sympathetic or won't help or whatever, is that they just don't understand because some of the words or the connecting mm -hmm. of those words together just haven't ever been used. Um, you know, the dictionary's there, we just don't use it. Um, yeah. But for validation purposes, you know, I'm sure better than me, that if you can reflect back to somebody who's telling you about their story, how they feel, their worries, their aspirations, if you can reflect it back to them, both in their language, but also in other language, mm -hmm. it feels validating. Yep. Um, and you, you know, they feel seen. That's how I feel. You know, people feel seen, they feel heard, they feel understood. And sometimes what is a barrier is that people just don't have the language to be able to reflect back to people in a way that isn't just rote. You know, yeah. I heard you say that you were feeling afraid. I can see that you're afraid. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. You know, like, wouldn't it be so much better when you say, you know, I hear you talking about this mix of emotions you have which includes some excitement, some trepidation, you know, you're feeling the physical effects, the hairs are going up on your body, you know, um, I can I can see that, I feel that. Yep, mm -hmm. you know, you're right. Yeah. You, you're feeling it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I can imagine, uh, you know, in the, in the parenting context that because, you know, parents have the ultimate purity of wanting to help that that's a conversation that if parents feel capable and knowledgeable they would love to move towards right if I can help you understand what's you know you've fallen off your skateboard and Nisa let's explore what's hurting and what you're feeling and let's try to validate but also get you to be aware of it so we also know what we need to do but then I just my brain jumped to 
I was trying to picture that conversation in a business environment and I was trying to imagine a leader sitting down with a team member and maybe it's through a bad performance review or maybe a project hasn't gone well or maybe it has gone well and leader going you know tell me what you're feeling when I've just given you this feedback or this rating or whatever they they have um and then yeah really exploring it that way and you know what are the emotions this would not happen that that level of conversation of a leader sitting down and really trying to help a person explore the emotions and maybe if we take performance review out maybe if it's suggested a bad um, internal presentation or client presentation something that the leader was observing is maybe a bit easier and sitting down and go well you know how did you feel through that and you know what are you thinking now and what thoughts come to your mind when you talk think about doing the next presentation and you know what do those feelings and sensations you had tell you about um, that you can learn from you know to, to build more confidence for the next time you know that would be a fantastic leader but that does not happen um, so why do we not bring more parental mm. nurture and support into mm. that leadership context? You know, that would be a highly emotionally intelligent, very technically aware, gifted leader to have that conversation. It would be a very 1% of the, the leadership population at best, um, in my estimate. But then wouldn't that be a wonderful way to actually do mentorship or leadership mm. or peer support or whatever it is to be able to do that but we, we never go in that depth it's like hey how do you think you went yeah i don't think that went very well what would you do different in the next time this is a good conversation mm -hmm. next time i think i'll probably prepare a little bit more do a bit more rehearsal and i maybe i'd you know run a few of the of dummy questions with you beforehand yeah good plan where we go mm -hmm. slap on the back off mm -hmm. but we never kind of explore that sensation element behind it mm -hmm. because that's what's going to drive behavior you know emotions exist to elicit responses in ourselves. It's, um, but we don't explore the emotions a lot. We explore behavior and mm -hmm. we could go a level deeper. And I think parenting um, maybe naturally goes there much faster. Mm. I completely agree. And I think that's why I, I think there's been much more of a proliferation of people wanting coaches and mentors because in those conversations, they can do that thing. They can do that conversation, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I I can remember working with a, um, a tier two leader, um, very experienced, you know, high up in the organization um, about having to go into an executive team discussion that they mm -hmm. had, you know, three times a week. But this one, they had some big decisions that they needed to get made. Um, and I, you know, I was providing a little bit of support ahead of time. And I said, um, you know, if I was you, I'd be scared, um, you know, because they're a tough crowd. Like, you know, they can whip you with their tongue. They're your peers, but also, you know, they're kind of your customers and your boss is watching. You know, I'd be really frightened. Um, and there was this pause and this this leader said I am you know yes I am uh and it was just I mean we didn't go into it any in any more depth at that mm -hmm. in that um moment but actually sometimes all it needs is somebody to acknowledge there is some feeling in that we are mm -hmm. human beings we bring ourselves to work however I know that's become a much overused phrase but we don't leave our personalities at the door. We don't leave mm -hmm. our worries. Uh, you know, we don't leave grief. Um, we don't. We don't leave physical symptoms at the door. Why do we? Why do we think we leave emotional symptoms mm -hmm. at the door? Um, yeah. And so we bring all of that. Um, yet we we just don't talk about it. And it doesn't take very much no. to have a, a feeling conversation. Um, I think the whole movement to leaders as coaches was originally, you know, was designed perhaps to tap into what you were talking about. Um, but I think somewhere it's lost. It's lost that sense of human to human and it's become more about performance coaching. Mm -hmm. um, and absolutely that is needed, but it's not needed every single time you're talking to somebody who works for you. Sometimes mm -hmm. you just want to know, how are they going? Like, yeah. are things really terrible? Is it is it overwhelming them? How's their, their family going? You know, is this sore knee that's been troubling them for months? Is it really still getting them down? Because that will be dispiriting. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll stop them sleep sleeping. You can spend 20 minutes over a coffee asking just about those things 
and showing empathy and showing that you care and performance can lift because mm -hmm. they have somebody alongside them who sees them yeah i i agree and there's there's not a there's not an athlete in the world or a leader or a prof, you know professional person that doesn't have self-doubt and fear leading up to a performance moment it doesn't exist our brain is hardwired to see threat first and foremost and it casts a bigger shadow than possible reward it's part of the challenges of of trying to overcome fear and trying to move forward and move towards action um, and so understanding that even though this person's the best performer in your team um, whether it be business or sports team or they're your leader and you know you look up to them they're your role model they will still be nervous or anxious at performance anxiety of some degree leading to it so talking about it can also help right? because sometimes when people are the leader of a business or the team captain or anything we assume when people are looking up we assume that they've got it sorted what could i do to help them i can't they're better than me they know more they always perform but actually understanding they're going to go through different their own version of performance anxiety and exploring it and empathizing um, with it is also a great way to form an extra connection but also help that person feel like uh, feel like that they can actually come to to you if something does go off the rails later on uh, you know it's that foundation of trust as well but we often don't do that to the good performers we assume assume they're the sorted because they wouldn't have been a good performer if they haven't but trying to build that connection can be, be a really great way because there will be different contexts where that person will be flipping it and their the anxiety will be really high it may be a different context to us but they will have those moments and if they're always left alone because they've got it sorted then they're going to be very vulnerable in those moments mm. because they won't have had um, interactions of support they won't have had people to either empathize or to ask some reflective questions so they can self-analyze or they'll just feel lonely because mm. um they won't have this these common connections and everyone will leave them to their own devices as well and that can be in life or a sport or work um, so it's a, it's a really nice approach that you shared. Hey, listen, we have been talking for well over an hour and I feel like we could probably, we could probably talk all weekend. Um, I, I can hear a, a hungry baby that wants um, some dad time. Uh, so I wanted to say I really appreciated you sharing your time and your thoughts. Uh, there's a lot that I'm going to take away personally and think about how can I refine you know what I'm doing if life is a constant kind of refinement process uh, mm -hmm. we're not just getting more grumpy uh, we're actually <laughs> getting more refined uh, in what we're willing to take or not um, yeah. so I wanted to express some gratitude for your time and your thoughts and your sharing um, of your experiences um, and to say you know I, I am here if you ever need anything from me I'm a firm believer in something called Pro Pro, which is mm -hmm. you know about sharing and helping each other out um, yeah. so thank you very much yeah likewise uh, it's a pleasure and it's wonderful that we were connected and I had a great conversation and likewise I also want to reflect back that I took a lot away myself from hearing it from hearing your story from seeing some parallels and some differences and also a lot of great learning and I um, having you know been a solopreneur for a few years understand the value of of networking and helping each other out and making connections and i want to offer the same um you know kind offer back to you as well and um, we're both sitting on little coastlines in a small little country but um yeah i think it's a great way to be and look forward to, to staying connected fantastic thank you so much andy likewise uh, have a great day you too thank you so much for listening and thanks, as always, to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.